Hey folks, we've got Josh Bertrand back on the show this week. He is coming off a big win in the One Bass U.S. Open, which, if you're not familiar with it, is one of the longest-running and most important tournaments out west. Um, It's not affiliated with MLF or Bass. It's kind of its own thing. It has been for a long time, and it is a super cool event. This year, it was at a different lake than normal. Um... And Bertrand beat out a really stacked field, uh, had a huge bag the first day, and got the win. Uh, so we go deep on it. Um, I I know I learned a lot about the lake, and I learned definitely some about the fishing during our conversation. I suspect others will as well. Then we also recapped his last Bass Pro Tour event at Mille Lacs. Um, He did really good in the beginning of that tournament and then kind of faltered as the tournament went on and we got into some of the reasons that might have been some of the decisions that he, you know, would maybe like to redo. Um, But anyway, it's a nice show if you like Josh. Uh, If you're tired of Josh Bertrand, I'm sorry, but that's life. He's, you know, catching a lot of fish and it's a fun guy to talk to. So uh, here he is. Alrighty, and we are joined now by Josh Bertrand, uh, Bass Pro Tour Pro, and the newest U.S. Open champion uh, on Lake Mojave. Uh, dude, congratulations. Thank you so much, man. It uh, has been a pretty special week for me, for sure. Being a Western fisherman, um, that tournament is really important to me, so I'm uh, finally... I came, actually came back down to earth real quick right after the tournament. I got super sick that night, <laughs> and it took me down for a couple of days. But uh, uh, I've been back down to earth uh, since then for sure. Yeah, it's that tournament is one that I have – ever since I realized what it was and, like, realized the importance of it, it's one that I've always wanted to fish. Even though until this year, I've never seen weights that make me say, oh, man, that looks like fun. It's just <laughs> – seemed like something where I should, I wanted to experience it, you know, like in my head, whenever I either retire or get fired or do something else, the first thing I'm going to do is try to make the all American because I want to fish that tournament. And the U S open is kind of the same thing. Like it just, it's got an allure to it that not many other tournaments have. And if you're a West coast guy, I mean, man, it's like something that I would imagine, you know, you could put that on your gravestone that you were a U.S. Open champion. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you as far as having a unique allure to it. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those tournaments that's such a big deal, but it doesn't quite get the press that like, uh, the national level tour event would get. Right. And I've talked about that a little bit this week, but, um, if you just look at, the guys have won and Billy Egan, the tournament director uh, in honor of Aaron Martins this year um, is doing a, or started a perpetual winner's trophy. So it's a trophy that stays with him, stays with one bass, but it goes to every U S open and the winner gets his name engraved on it every year. 
And if you look at that trophy, you'll see Rick Clun, Dave Glebe, Gary Klein, Aaron Martins, Aaron Martins, John Murray, uh, Cliff Perch, uh, Roy Hawk, all of the, uh, and so many more. I'm missing tons, Justin Kerr, but like the who's who of Western bass fishing, uh, without a doubt. And it's, uh, just, uh, and those are the guys that you grow up idolizing being a Western fisherman. So, um, that's it right there. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's just like, to have your name next to those guys is like the most unbelievable thing in the world for a, for a Western fisherman. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And like, if you, if you look at the list and even if you don't, if you're, if you're not super familiar with Western fishing, you can still pull a lot of big names from it, you know? And if you are familiar with Western fishing and you know, all of the local guys who are also in it and interesting, it's, like an even cooler thing yeah and it's it's cool because it's a uh, it's an open tournament so anyone can sign up um you know it's a 1600 hundred dollar entry fee and uh, you get national pros that travel from back east i mean rick clun's been coming back forever he was there again this year um and then you've got you know uh, guys that that fish five times a year fishing this thing so it's pretty wild the variety of fishermen you get but but uh, just absolute, uh, the, the best guys in the West fish it. And um, it's always a tough tournament. You know, it's been at Lake Mead for the last 40 years. And this is the first year they had to take it off Mead because of low water at Lake Mead. Lake Mead's still huge, but the launch ramp situation is the problem. There, you know, used to be six big marinas on Lake Mead. You know, it, it, there was tons of access and just over the years as that water's dwindled it's dried up the bays and coves that these marinas and launch ramps are in now you've got one small launch ramp and marina near um boulder city nevada which is near las vegas it's got like a lane and a half to launch on and that is the only launch ramp on this entire lake for the whole city of las vegas and anyone that comes to lake mead so safe to say it wasn't going to work this year for this tournament. Um, so, you know, Billy did a good job of finding a good alternative. Lake Mojave is the lake directly below Mead. Um, not quite as big, but it's a good sized lake. It's probably, I'd have to, without measuring it, maybe 50 miles long. Um, it's got really good fishing and it's got, you know, much higher water. Uh, Mead's the flood control lake as is Lake Powell. And then you've got Mojave and Havasu below, which they're able to keep relatively full because they're a little bit smaller and uh you know uh, just work works out that way okay and is mojave like currently full or semi-full like what's this is some of the like dumb this is these are some dumb questions from someone who's never seen a lake basically but what's it what's it like right now oh you got to paint a picture because yeah most you know most people have never been there what's crazy dude is i've never been there until july i went for two days in july i've never even fished it four and a half hours from my house but they just there's never been a bunch of big tournaments there so i've never made the time to go but it's uh it stays relatively full one month out of every year they draw the lake down about 10 feet and it's all i couldn't tell you all the details i'm not a game and fish biologist but there's some type of uh, local native chub or sucker that spawns and to 
and it's like an endangered fish or something. And to allow this thing to spawn, they have to lower the water so it creates little pools or puddles up on dry land. With it's the weirdest thing ever, but they do that every year, and it happened. You know, it's happening right now. So it's relatively full, but it's falling. It dropped about eight, eight, ten feet, and now it's it's about to stabilize and then slowly start to come back up to its full pool. Um, and then as a, the lake as a whole, it's really clear water. I mean, at times you could see 30 feet right now, it's about 10 to 15 foot visibility. Um, and when it's full, it's got fantastic shoreline cover. Like when I went in July, I was blown away at the amount of grass and shallow water tules, um, brush in the water, trees in the water. I mean, it's, it's really cool. And it's got a good largemouth population that lives up in that stuff. But with the dropping water this week or this month, it really pulled a lot of those fish out and it turned into an offshore fishing uh, tournament for sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, we're going to do an entire podcast about these particular chubs or native minnows. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... I'll be a good guest. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> yeah, second, this is like, it is an incredible looking body of water on Google Earth. I mean, it the water looks so clear, and all of these like points and these washes and things like they all, they all look good on Navionics. Like, dude, I mean, it looks like a really fishy place because the maximum depth is like. 150 or something like that and there's a ton of water that's like less than 40 feet deep it seems like you know whether it's these flatter areas or like almost every point goes out a little ways it's not like a sheer cliff everywhere you know like i can see why it'd be good fishing yeah and and you look if you look at it there's so much of the same right there are so many pockets that look the same and so many points that look the same um and, and there could be a fish on any of them but uh, just like most desert lakes, there's a lot of, there is a lot of dead water. And that's part of the challenge there is, 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 you know, the fish populations aren't like they are at, um, you know, some of the lakes up North and even in the Southeast, but, um, it's a good lake. It's got, like you said, it's got a lot of fishable habitat and, uh, the large mouth, small mouth mix is like really cool, dude. I love lakes that have both. I know you fish a lot of that, a lot of lakes, that have both yourself and it's cool to have that choice to make on what you want to do, or maybe do both through the day um, when you're out there. And uh, it's just real easy to change gears and fish the conditions because you have a lot more options. It's not like you're on some Southern fishery with only Florida strain largemouth, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. here you've got a lot of different choices and have us use the same way to, Hey, it's common sunny today. I'm going to smallmouth fish. Now, if tomorrow we got a breeze blowing, um, it's going to make it, you know, maybe some clouds rolling in. It's going to be a better opportunity to catch those largemouth or even do both in the same day. You know, you, you could start the day hunting for those, those weary largemouth up shallow when it's low light and then work your way out to the deeper smallies. So it's, it's pretty unique, uh, dynamic fishery. And the other X factor on this lake is uh, the wind. Like it's not a real wide body water. It's a river lake. But uh, as you can see, it's straight up and down. And the current runs north-south. So all the locals, they've got nicknames for it, like Blow Hobby. Um, <laughs> they call it the wind tunnel because it seems like talking to, you know, my buds that fish it a lot, it, it's really, it's windy there a lot. And it's an absolute nightmare when the wind blows against the current. 
Um, it apparently gets extremely rough and there's no way to run the bank or anything like that because it's just straight up and down. Um, but what's crazy is we didn't have a lick of wind all week last week, practice wow. or the tournament. That's yep. incredible. Yeah, I'm looking at this like middle part of the lake here where I guess uh, maybe it's not the middle exactly, but there's like a big bulge kind of. They call it, it the basin. It sure looks like if you got a north wind or a south wind, uh, the north or south side of that thing would be just bonkers. <laughs> it, it that's, that's exactly right. And, and you know, the worst thing is when you're going down swell, right? Like it's when you're driving into the waves, you can kind of keep the bow up and, and make it slowly but safely. But when you have to drive straight down waves, you know, when the waves are straight vertical up and down and you're going with the, with the waves and they're five footers and you can't really tack back and forth that much because it's just straight up and down. So it's, it's a nasty lake. And there have been a lot of horror stories and days canceled and stuff like that. And, uh, I was, I mean, man, if you would have told me that we didn't, we wouldn't have a windy day all week, uh, I would, I would have been blown away, but it was like a, the summer weather pattern just really carried into the, through the whole tournament and really until right about now it's still hot um in phoenix and then over there it was it was 100 degrees every day practice in the tournament uh last week oh that's uh way too hot for me i'm like fully into flannels and you know beanies in the morning <laughs> like i'm i'm like in fall mode now <laughs> yeah 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 it's the opposite of what you're dealing with um as far as like for folks that or maybe a semi-familiar with Western fishing or followed some tournaments is, is the most similar lake to this that is more known? Like, is it, is it Havasu, but just more smallmouth? Yeah, I would say it's, it's more similar to Havasu than it is Mead, right? It's kind of in between the two on the chain and, you know, it's similar to the Tennessee river. You might have two lakes that are right next to each other and they could be real similar or real different. And, uh, that one's kind of a hybrid. It's, it's got clearer water than Havasu. Havasu's sometimes can be clear, but a lot of times it'll have kind of a teal aqua looking color to it. Um, whereas mead is like really, really clear. And, uh, Mojave's got the clear water of mead, but again, with the, with the water level always being relatively high, you've got that largemouth habitat and it makes it such a good largemouth fishery. Um, and that, it's, it's funny too, because like people ask like, how are the fish so small in mead and so big <laughs> in Mojave? And there's all the, all that splits them is the dam. But it, to me, it really shows how, and this is again, not a biologist opinion, but it shows how important bass habitat is and having a steady water level, you know, uh, those bass just can thrive when they always have cover to live in and they don't have to live this crazy nomadic life that the bass do in like a Lake Mead where, you know, the water level fluctuates so much and, and the largemouth at times have to act more like stripers to, to go get their food. They can't just sit next to a tree and wait for a bluegill to swim by. They got to go find it, man. So it's, it's pretty interesting that, I mean, the fish are, the weights are twice as good at Mojave as what they are at Mead. I mean, literally double the weights at Mead, and uh, you've got what's in Mojave. Yeah. Actually, on the, on the weights note, I want to get into, like, how you caught them. And I want to dive into that eventually. But, you know, if you look at, if you look at this tournament, I mean, <clears throat> there were some guys who really were on them, 
And then there were kind of some guys who really were not. I mean, you uh, there's a hun- more than 100 guys in, almost 200. And you basically lapped, uh, like, 50th place. Um, no, I'm just picking Jeff Barrett out of a hat here. Sorry, Jeff. But he caught almost 14 pounds one day, then 6 pounds one day, and then 11 and a half pounds one day. And, like, on the... And there were a lot of people who couldn't put consistent days together. Oh, and that like, was most. You and Spencer Shuffield, I mean, honestly, just made it look easy. <laughs> um, so, like, what was... Why Why does it, like, set up where it's that difficult, do you think? Well, you know, I think this was just a really unique tournament. Next year it could be totally different, but it was the perfect storm for an offshore smallmouth, you know, style fishing tournament, using a lot of live scope. Um, and Spencer and I have been doing that all summer long in just the various tournaments we've been fishing. We yep. came in ready to do it, and I think we were probably both lucky enough to see early on in practice that that was going to be the deal. And, man, we just went on cruise control and did what we've been doing all year. And I think, you know, it's uh, it's not such a common deal out west out here. Not that, I mean, these guys are good, are, are great fishermen and good offshore fishermen too, but typically on the Colorado River this time of year, you can catch them shallow on topwaters and swim baits and uh, just a variety of different things. And uh, I think even when practice started, when the water hadn't dropped too much, it sucked a lot of guys in up shallow because they still could catch those fish and uh you know you blink the water's down another three feet and the fish are just swimming away from the bank as fast as possible and uh you know it was like it i I guarantee you next year after everyone kind of saw how it was how it was won and how a lot of the top 10 fish it'll the weights will be a lot tighter for sure but it was just a a really unique i think situation Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to hear. Cause like, it really looked like some of the top 10 were on a different lake more than you expect to see in a three day tournament where everyone fishes every day, you know? And, uh, obviously you like, you guys got to apply all of your knowledge at the exactly the right time. Like when I, when I saw Spencer Sheffield catching like three pounders, like crazy in practice, I was like, oh, well, obviously this is how people are going to catch fish. I know what I know what he's doing. It's, I've got to know what yeah. he's doing. I know yeah. what Spencer Sheffield does. And then absolutely, I guess like you replicated it and nobody else did. <laughs> Not that you were like, hey, let me see yeah. what Spencer Sheffield is doing. But I'm like, oh, I can. OK, th- this is going to be a great tournament. And then it was sort of the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so, I mean, I kind of. I thought I knew how it might go down uh, ahead of time. And as soon as I saw Spencer's name on the roster, I went, here we go. <laughs> you know, he'll be in the top five for sure. And, uh, yeah, he came real close. So, uh, we'll see. Like I said, it'll be tighter next year. And uh, it wasn't easy, man. It still wasn't that easy. Uh, you know, as the tournament went on, it got tougher and tougher because guys did make adjustments and they did. I mean, man, I was fishing around a lot of boats. Um, everyone was. There was no way to avoid that. And the fish got highly pressured, and it did get tougher and tougher. But, again, um, you know, it was just a lot easier 
you know, if I had been kind of planning all week for that to happen. So I was trying to save stuff, trying to make adjustments and plans for when that did happen, rather than maybe just halfway through the tournament saying, okay, I got to start fishing out deep now and starting from scratch there. You know, it's a lot harder that way. In, a, in an offshore tournament, as you know, it takes practice to find the areas and locations and stuff like that. It's really hard to just, it's one thing to wing it up shallow, but to go wing it out deep is really hard. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, because the thing about winging it out deep is like you have you have almost you have more you have almost unlimited options because at least the way smallmouth can behave, like they could very easily be suspended out there. They could also be on all of the points that top out in like forty or whatever. You know that you have. A lot of things they could do what what were they doing for you like did you have a pattern did you have areas was it both you know i ended up fishing a ton of different places i was running and gunning a lot um and it's funny to like as the week went on i i noticed like at the beginning of the week without much pressure the fish were right where they should have been right uh on the top of the point on the top of the hump on the right next on top, but next to the break off the flat. And they were in pretty good little, like little groups, not big mm-hmm. schools, but little groups. And then as the fishing pressure got worse and the week went on, they weren't in groups anymore. They weren't where they were supposed to be anymore. And you had to get real creative to find them and catch them. You, you know, the, the last day of the tournament, gosh, man, it was a hodgepodge of like caught one off a grass line, saw one swimming, swimming by and like 20 feet over 40 pitch over to it catch it catch one off the in a saddle between two points catch one off the side of a break uh that type of stuff compared to like early in the week you could pull up to a good looking point look at live scope count eight fish and cast over there and get a bite instantly you know it was a lot different wow so were you then would you come would you pull up to a point maybe this is more mid tournament, late tournament. Would you pull up to a point and then be on the, on your scope, on your trolling motor for 20, 30 minutes, like searching, or were you still like pulling up to a lot of points per day or a lot of humps per day, trying to like trying to find the one that had actually correctly positioned and active fish, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. It was probably a combination, you know. I, I definitely don't want to act like I had this amazing pattern figured out like that, because or, or or perfect game plan, because it definitely was like you taking what you could get. And uh, and again, the pressure was so crazy. Sometimes you just had to fish where you could. Like, you know, you'd pull into an area that had five points, and there's boats on four of them, and a guy just left the fifth one. So you're fishing where you could um, and just feeling it out, right? Like if you're seeing some bait around, if you think maybe you saw a couple of fish, you might stick around a little longer, keep pitching around, scoping around. Um, if it was total ghost town, you know, you right away. But, uh, and, and also through the week, you get a better gauge of what areas are really good and which ones aren't, you know, I mean, if you're in a brand new area and you pull up and it seems like the dead sea, you're probably going to pull the plug a lot quicker than, if you're in an area where you've kind of been getting bit all week, you know, there's some fish around and they're just maybe not sitting up on top right now. You might make two quick, two or three passes instead of one thinking that, okay, maybe they'll swim up and I'll, I'll get a shot at them, um, you know, on the second or third try. Okay. Um, 
how long is Mojave, like, roughly? Is it, uh, like, are you running the whole length of the lake in a day, or did you kind of stake out in, like, hey, I've got a 10-mile section or a 5-mile section, and I'm going to maximize my time in here? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, I would guess probably 50 miles of fishable water. Um, That's a pretty big lake. And I, yeah, it's pretty big. I didn't use the whole thing for sure. Um, I used probably half of it. And, uh, and again, yeah, just trying to be efficient, you know, not ping pong back and forth like a crazy man, but hit stuff on, on the way up or on the way down and just, uh, you know, and you know, pressure tournaments like that is kind of funny, man. Um, and you see it a lot in like anywhere where there's a lot of pressure, but Florida too, stuff like that, where one minute you'll be in an area and everywhere you look is a boat. You can count 15 boats and you're thinking, my God, this thing, this lake's getting hammered. And then you leave and come back an hour later and there's no one. And, uh, you know, the saying boats attract boats. It's, uh, yep. it was like that a lot too, where like there might be an area that's just getting hammered for a little bit and then it just, then there's no one there. And that was a big deal too, is like, um, you know, obviously having good timing and, if you see a boat leave a spot, you know, you don't really want to pull in right behind them. You know, if you can fish a spot that's been clean for an hour, your odds of having some fish that are, that are susceptible to biting are a lot better. So you were almost trying to run against the grain then? You know, just, uh, just playing by feel, right? Like, I mean, when, uh, when, when you're running a bunch of spots and, and your timing's good, you keep it going. And then, yeah you fish two or three places you're not catching anything got a lot of boats around might be a good time to go five miles that way or five miles that way and i guess yeah against the grain is a, a way to to say that but uh just trying to yeah go by feel okay that's uh that's cool what were you uh what were you catching them on like i think i read just drop shot flatworm which i kind of thought those only worked on the east coast i didn't i thought you had to use robo worms out west but I'm open to learning new things. Yeah. Well, this was pretty cool because it was, uh, it was like, it was really the first tournament, um, out West that I've been able to stick to that flatworm the whole day. You know, I, I use it a lot at West and, and I, I use it, um, more for smallmouth and largemouth. It works on largemouth for sure. But this was a ter- time when I was all for smallmouth and man, it's, when I came up to pre-practice for a couple of days in July, I caught enough fish on it where I was like, wow, they just love this thing here. And, uh, I never even tried anything else. I went shallow, you know, through top water, swim bait, stuff like that. Um, especially in practice. But when I was out deep drop shotting, you know, it's, it's so nice to have a bait that, you know, is probably the best bait for that situation. And when you have confidence in what's on the end of your rod and reel, all you have to worry about is finding the fish and you don't have to worry about figuring out what they're going to bite. So, you know, and that's uh, for me, smallmouth fishing in general, if those fish are out off the bank and, and they'll eat a drop shot, it's not, there's not even a decision to be made. It's just locked in flatworm color sometimes matters, but more often than not, it doesn't. And, uh, if you put it in front of them, they're going to bite that probably better than anything else. Did the color matter out there? Good question. And, and not really not. So I, I ended up getting started with the green pumpkin shades and I kind of stuck to it. So just green pumpkin, green pump, pumpkin party, talked to a couple other guys that did well. They caught them on bait fish colors. So 
I don't think the color mattered all that much, but I just stuck to green. Okay. It's, uh, it's interesting how, like, how much that can vary and how much you can, one day you can believe it matters and the next day it can totally <laughs> not. Because, like, even at the St. Lawrence, I mean, you'll see a top 10 all the time. It's, like, loaded with brown back. And then also it'll have green pumpkin and black. And those couldn't be more different colors, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, I had a buddy uh, when we had fished up there last year, spawn, and uh, the brown back was so hard to find, right? And he is he's fishing the tournament, and he has a great day on bedfish with brown back. And he's like, dude, I need all the brown backs you have. I'm like, dude, I'm not giving you these brown backs to bedfish with. You don't need them to bedfish, you know? <laughs> we can't <laughs> wait for bedfish. And he's like, I need them, dude. And I'm like, I don't think it matters on a bedfish, man. You're not going to waste my precious brown back flatworms on bedfish. Yeah, I think that was the right move. I don't, I wouldn't waste brown back on bedfish. <laughs> I guess, I guess now I would. I can buy them in the 30 packs, but not, not back in the day. <laughs> yeah, last year they, they weren't available for sure. Yeah, I went into that. I fished that open at out of Clayton, like as a co-angler. And I think uh -huh. that like people were still buying Brownback on eBay then. And I went in the tournament like a pack and a half. <laughs> I'm like, I guess these are what I'm throwing. And then I don't think I ever threw them. I think I just threw Green Pumpkin anyway. <laughs> but that's the color that everybody's always wanted. Yeah, it, I mean, it is one of the best looking colors. It, and they do definitely eat it. Um, no doubt. How about uh, like pound test and weight? Like, how deep were you fishing? did it was it a, a fall speed thing were you doing some crazy four pound test west coast stuff what was the situation there yeah nothing crazy at all there just a typical like three eighths ounce tungsten xps drop shot weight um i was using six pound test trilene which is pretty strong six you know a little bit on the thicker side for six but it's it's really really strong um and then uh medium light action rod so it was that new drop shot rod that i helped abu with the pro series drop shot rod and when i go up like to your neck of the woods to smallmouth fish sometimes i'll use a medium action just the fish are so big the waves are big you get a little extra control around the boat with the fish you're using sometimes a half ounce weight but in this case um the fish weren't they weren't you know a lake ontario fish that will swim up and just grab your bait like no tomorrow these fish were were they were pretty smart right so a lot of the bites were pretty subtle and sometimes you're fishing 20 to 40 feet but if you're on the deeper side of that the bites are real subtle so using a medium light to me really helps in that scenario feel that really subtle bite and then using six pound instead of eight or ten when you get them on the side of the boat it's a little more forgiving with that medium light also just uh you know the lake has got some zebra mussels in it you never know when you'll have a nick in your line and just having a little bit of extra forgiveness on that medium light seemed to help so uh i'm I'm all in on the on the medium light in a situation like that okay yeah those uh those pro rods they're you know the pro series rods or whatever they're called they have they all look cool uh and they're very good rods. I've got to play with several of them. And you guys did a nice job on those. Thank you, man. I mean, I, obviously, Abu deserves all the credit and the other pros that did theirs. But uh, 
yeah, they're just now coming available in uh, stores. Mine should be in Bass Pro. Um, and, uh, yeah, just uh, pretty cool that they're, they're going to be retail for roughly about $200. They, they, um, the handles of the rods are matched to everyone's boat wrap. They kind of design them. So you can see mine's got, like, that purple camo on it. But uh, pretty, pretty unique and pretty fun to be able to use them uh, this quick along and actually win a tournament on them, man. There's a lot of rods I've been fishing my whole life and never won a tournament with, so. <laughs> <laughs> I I hear you. Um, no, that's cool. Is there, I, I guess day one, you had a huge day. You had 23 and a half, basically, 23.45. Um, was there anything that, like, broke particularly well that day or key moments? Because, I mean, without that giant day, I don't know if you win the tournament. Because, man, no. I mean, Spencer came on really strong in day two and day three. Yep. Yep, and I think he could have just kept going, dude. It, it <laughs> certainly looked like if you could have sent you could have sent him out for five or six more days and the same thing would have happened. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, that day was uh, was a big deal. And, um, you know, it just went, went perfect. Um, you know, my first two or three places I went to, I caught giants on all of them. You know, the – first spot we went to we caught basically you know at least one fish over four and a half on every one of our first like three or four spots and a couple of them too wow. so it was just just perfect i mean i i went to the the places of course you start the tournament on your what you think are your best places and the places that are going to get fished the most right and uh i did i went to the obvious best places i had it was we, like we talked about sometimes you get lucky with timing sometimes you get unlucky but I knew for a fact I was the first guy in every one of those spots and uh, got the easy ones. And we were done pretty early. And, um, you know, the second day wasn't quite that easy, but it was still relatively good. I mean, we caught our weight on, you know, pretty much everything by about 10. And then the final day was not nearly as easy. It got really difficult and we had to scratch and claw. Okay. Did you, uh, did you and Spencer see each other in the tournament? Like, were you fishing around each other at all or were you doing, you know, or, or were you both smashing them in totally separate sections of the lake? I think, uh, I saw him. I guess you might not, never... you might not know his boat wrap perfectly though. That's the thing I realized. <laughs> oh no, I, I definitely do. And I saw him, um, but mainly in passing. I, okay. I never really saw near him we both randomly decided to start on the exact same spot on the third day which is the funny thing um we've both been saving it and then we started there and then cliff pert showed up too dude so we were laughing spencer and i ended up leaving i don't think either of us caught anything there Perch but, was in uh, third was, i think going into that final day right yes, dude. yeah so the three of us just randomly poof wow. right there and uh, I think Cliff had been fishing there all week, so he's probably thinking, what the heck, you know, but Spencer and I ended up moving on. Um, but other than that, we really didn't see each other a whole lot, but I'm sure we were doing the same thing, um, and I'm not surprised at all that he caught him the way he did. He's he's good, as yeah, you know. No um, and you said, did you say you had two over five on the first day or one over five? Because I know you said you didn't weigh a big bass, but, yeah, man, they look huge. <laughs> It was pretty dumb on my part not to do that because they do. They pay really well for big bass, and 
you know, uh, the guy that bumped Hank had asked, do you have anything over five and a half? And I said, Ooh, five and a half. And I don't think so, man. He's like, then you don't need a way of base. I was like, okay. Okay. Uh, my fish, I should have done it, but it, it, you know, I had to have had a couple that were, were pushing five. I mean, it, uh, the, it was a stout bag for sure. And, and you tell yourself when you're on the water, I play a little head games with myself and try to tell myself they're not as big as they are. You have less than you have and helps you fish better. Right. Um, in my opinion, you fish a little harder. If you, if you're telling yourself, I got 23 pounds, you know, where we got it made, it's really easy to sit back on your heels a little bit. Right. But, uh, if you're telling yourself that yeah, they're not, they're, they're fours, they're not four and a half, they're not fives. And you just, I think for me anyways, it's one of my ways to motivate myself. And, uh, you know, it was always, it was a pleasant surprise when they were like 23 and a half. I put them all on the scale. I can't, I can't make that math come out of my head. So when I'm calling, I'm like, I know what I got, <laughs> but I That's hear you. And Spencer's the same way, you know, Spencer's the same way. Uh, he weighs everything too. And I don't know, it's, it's funny because like, uh, Fishing the Bass Pro Tour, you're not really doing a lot of live well and hauling and stuff like that. And, uh, dude, you just get rusty at it, right? And uh, I was going to ask you that. fish one or two tournaments a year where you're doing that. Um, and, you know, there were a couple times where I was like, man, maybe I need to start implementing a weighing system because running through and, and call it balance aiming these fish five times a day, ten times a day is a waste of time. So uh, I, I'm already – my uh, – my uh, calling skills have gone by the wayside in the five years I've been doing this. And I think I need to um, get me a new system. I think, uh, you know, it's a system a lot of people use, but that uh, Rapala scale can make life pretty dang easy. Um, and well, you carry, a cul-, you carry you a cull beam because every once in a while you have a very close decision you need to make. But unless you're in rough water, man, you can trust that thing. And like to a large degree. Uh, well, and fish in Champlain, you probably test that to the max with the amount of parity in those fish, right? Oh yeah, you catch like there's there's a lot of times where you know I I don't carry a cull beam. I should, but there are a lot of times where I end up with two fish that weigh basically the same or within a hundredth of a pound, and then because I'm stupid and don't carry a cull beam, I weigh them again, and if they still weigh the same thing. I just keep whichever one's fresher. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, smart. But, but yeah, like it's a, it's a good scale, and if you have a scale with weights, that really does like that you can store the weights in. I mean, there's I think there's some other models, but man, it's a it's the way to go. I need to start doing that for sure. Yeah, but you know, Brian Thrift does that, and he he'll he marks. I mean, he used to anyway. And he's got, he uses those cull balls that he can put the, put the weights in at the top. And like, he knows what literally everything is. And I can, you can watch him weigh all his fish and know that he has like 19 pounds. And then he'll tell you he's got 16. So (laughs) you might be able to figure out a way to mentally separate that, you know, and have the truth for one side of your brain. And then, you know, motivation on the other side, let's call it. That is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a pretty special dude, and I, I believe that he can probably tell himself that. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I I mean, he, it seems to make sense to him, but... Um, That's... Dude, so that final day, did you... Uh, that way in, I didn't really watch it, but 
Did you know that you were going to win? Did you knew you'd done enough? Or was there a lot of doubt going into the very end? Well, I mean, thankfully, Spencer weighs his fish. So he, he just <laughs> I was knew. right next to him. He told me, he's like, dude, I got 20.8 or 20.9. And I knew that I had close to 18. So even though it was only a pound and a half difference or one six, it was like, it was enough to where I wasn't freaking out so much. Um, and I had been freaking out all day. It's funny, like, you know, uh, that tournament, just for whatever, carrying the lead for three days is so stressful. Um, you know, it's just everywhere you go and you appreciate it big time, but, you know, you're walking down to your boat in the morning and a hundred people tell you, good luck, you know, oh, dude, this is yours to win. And uh, it just ramps up, you know, you're getting text messages all night long, dude, this is yours, this is yours. And you appreciate it, but it just adds a lot of pressure and, uh, the whole, the pressure of the whole thing was really immense and I could feel it on the water. Um, I could feel it at weigh in. I couldn't even wind down afterwards. It was, I ended up getting really sick after, like I said, and I still don't know exactly what it is, but part of me thinks it could have just been heat exhaustion and, and, and the mental, you know, craziness that I was going through over the last three days before that probably added to it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what what was your other win before did you win a it was was, was it a bass open or it was an elite elite at oh at the st lawrence yeah 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 yep. so it's not like i have a ton of experience in that position but it just they were very different experiences for me interesting what did it yep. how, how did the two compare like from just a feeling aspect uh after you had the trophy because i mean they're both they're both big wins the elite series one especially at the time is like career defining um it was and, yep. you know they're 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 probably like similar levels of magnitude uh depending on your headspace i guess <laughs> exactly yeah you never know man like uh the, that first one was like a, mo a monster monkey being lifted off my back you know um because i, I was uh at the time, probably like 28, 29 years old, been fishing out there for like six years and um, watched a lot of my friends get their, you know, get their first win and their first big win and, and that breakthrough. And uh, I hadn't had it. So like every year I was ramping up more and more and more. So man, the it, that one was like such a huge weight being lifted off my shoulders. Um, and then not to mention, it was a real weird one too, because it was like, right at the time of the big split up. So, uh, there was all kinds of stuff that was going on. Um, my wife was about to have a baby. So it was like a huge relief on the tournament side and it meant, it meant the world, but this one, it means the world in a different, a different reason, uh, for sure. Just different ways, but, um, both equal for sure. Pretty, pretty cool. And those opportunities definitely, unless you're Jacob Wheeler, man, those opportunities don't come down around, super often so um you know definitely not gonna take either one for granted ever yeah it's definitely like to put yourself in a position to win a major tournament it well for some people it happens like about 10 times a year um but for most people it doesn't <laughs> happen that, that many times a year and no you and even more like most people don't capitalize it capitalize on it on you know a super high rate because it's incredibly hard uh 
I think, yeah, and I think the longer you fish, the more you realize that, right? Like, when you're really young, it's like, okay, well, I'll get him at the next one. And, uh, yeah, the longer you do it, you realize how special and important it is. And, dude, it might be one of those things that everyone's different, but everyone might get more and more special, um, you know, over time just because you do realize that it's just not an everyday occurrence for sure. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, well, I think I might be out of U.S. Open questions. Is there anything that we haven't covered or that we should? Because you were there, and, you know, if there's something I forgot, I want to hear about it. But I also might be nope. in a good place to move to Malax because I have a few more questions there. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's uh, slide over to that one. All right. Well, in that case, you and I talked, I believe, just after you'd caught, like, we'll say a zillion pounds. Uh, to start the Malax tournament, like you were on cloud nine, you were crushing it. And um, it kind of went downhill from there. And I want to know why, because it, you can learn a lot from tournaments that don't go well or from tournaments that go well and then turn sour a little bit like yours did. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you sometimes even more so when it, when it doesn't work out. Right. Um, so when we talked, yeah, I had had uh, the first day that everything went perfectly. Um, you know, I had a good school of crankbait fish that went nuts in the morning and then I went drop shot the rest of the day and those fish bit all day. Um, and then the next day I'm thinking I've just got to beat Steven Browning who had had an amazing day also. And I'm going to make the championship if I can beat Steven we get out there and it just starts slower. I ended up losing two thirds of my crankbait fish in the morning. They just weren't biting it quite as well. I think I had put some work on them the, the previous day and um, it was just maybe a little higher pressure. I don't know what the deal was, but instead of eating it, they were slapping at it and coming off after five cranks. So I leave the crankbait fish with only three or four in the live well. And then I, I jump on the boulder deal and my timing is completely off, you know, and, um, I'm not catch. I'm just not catching them. And I end up having one of those days where I bounce back and forth from shallow to deep and can't get comfortable doing anything. And I watched Mark Daniels come from 50 pounds back, have an epic day and, uh, and got me. And, uh, he ends up making the championship round and I, I was thankful to make the knockout round, but, um, now I'm going into the knockout round with like, after a brutal day with basically nothing to go off of. So it was, uh, you know, on paper, I was still in second qualifying, but I may as well have been in 20th because I got nothing to go to tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had to. And the, the weight zero again, like you've got to, you've exactly. got to reset. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's so easy to kind of stay married to, you have a day like that and, it's easier said than done to just let go of everything that you had. Right. Because it was so good. And it's like, I could just bite. If they could just bite like they did the first day, I could win. But the facts are those fish have moved on and, uh, and you got to be willing to let go of it. And, uh, so going into the, the, the uh, knockout round, it had been calm the, through the elimination round going into the knockout round, the wind, showed up and it's blowing right into the areas that I'm cranking in the morning. And a good decision would have been not to go back to this crankbait fish, but that 
little dude on my shoulder is like, if you go back to this crankbait fish and they bite better because it's windy, you could pull away and win this thing or you could make the championship again. So, dude, I go and run through all these waves back to those dang crankbait fish. And I try to fish for about 10 minutes. I can't even stand on the deck of the boat. I don't catch anything. And I just know it's not going to happen. So I have to start the motor and run 45 minutes back into the waves to the calm side of the lake. And uh, it it crushed my whole day because at that point, I'm already way behind, nothing in the first hour. And I ended up having a, a solid day of fishing with the drop shot on the boulders, but I had dug myself into that 15 pound hole and ended up missing the cut by about, I don't know, eight pounds, 10 pounds, something like that. So, uh, that was just such a dumb decision to go back up there and try it again. And it's just, uh, it's so hard to let go of what you've had going, um, earlier in the week, but those tournaments are so long. They go six days, so much changes and all it takes is one day for things to change, you know? Yeah, I think on big northern lakes, and I'll include Champlain, I'll include Mille Lacs, all the Great Lakes, obviously, I think playing the wind is actually underrated as a like as a as a a factor for tournament success because you need to play the wind all the way through practice and through the tournament. And you need to, at some point, you're going to need to guess right. And then at other points, you're just going to need to make the smart decision. And you fished on Mille Lacs a moderate amount, but you're not a local. Like, I think there's a really good chance that, like, Seth Fighter doesn't decide to run 40 minutes and torpedo the beginning of the day. You know what I mean? (laughs) At the same time, you or I don't have that level of experience to know we shouldn't do that, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's a, it's a very good point. Um, what so is that? You think that just that was the key bad decision? Was you shouldn't have ever been there? Like, was it one where you got halfway across and you started to rethink it with how rough it was getting, or did you get there and like still feel kind of good until you started to fish? It's funny you never know until you make a couple casts because you're still, I mean, I've seen it. I know you've seen it too, that sometimes if you can handle the waves, the smallmouth sometimes will bite really, really good in that yep. wind because of the current and stuff like that. I mean, I had an experience at Mille Lacs actually boulder fishing in an AOI tournament in 2017 where I did the same thing. I ran across the lake to some deep boulders because that's all I had. And it was the roughest, one of the roughest days I ever fished. I was fishing this reef that, 20 guys were fishing on days and the final day I'm the only idiot that went over there, but it's all I had. And those fish bit better than they did any day of the week tenfold because of the amount of current that was rolling over those rocks. And it was, it was great. So, you know, I had that blind, dumb hope that it would be the same thing there. And, uh, but, but you, you, you get to fishing and, and you make a few casts and, and you know, it doesn't feel right. And you know, you're screwed. So, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, kind of a bummer and, and that's one decision you can't put it all on one decision but that was definitely one decision that uh that got me for sure and that's an interesting lake because timing's so critical especially with the boulder fishing you know i was sharing a lot of uh water with jesse wiggins and uh it would just like one one day i would be getting them really good 
and then he would be catching them, and then the next day he would be getting them really good, and I wouldn't. It was just all about timing, right? And uh, I had fished these sets of boulders. That's the first thing I ran to after I got done, you know, getting beat up on the north end. And I ran through all these boulders and didn't catch, didn't get a bite. And I'm looking at fish. They're just not eating it. They're going down on my bait, not eating. And then uh, Jesse rolls through there a couple hours later and catches the fish off every boulder. Um, you know, and that's tournament fishing sometimes and timing. And those, those boulders definitely got better through the day. There's no doubt about it. But, uh, you know, I could have maybe held off a little bit longer and gone to them later in my own head. But, you know, sometimes it just just how, how the cookie crumbles. Yeah, no doubt. Um, another question on that front is, I remember you talking about an algae bloom. How did that move around or like continue to affect the tournament for you? Or did it kind of stop being a factor? That's a, and that's another, you know, not being a biologist, just a redneck bass fisherman. Um, I couldn't tell you why it was doing that or what it was doing. All I could say is there was a lot of particles in the water at times. And when it seemed like the fish bit better, when the water was clear and there were less particles in the water, um, and that, that was another factor too, like that, that uh, day where I struggled in the elimination round, that was really bad and there was no wind to blow it out. And, uh, you know, I feel like, uh, when, when you would get that wind, sometimes it could, could kind of push that stuff along and clear it up, but uh, it'd be interesting to talk to like a real Malax expert, like fighter or Josh Douglas or someone to explain what's going on there. Cause I really, uh, couldn't give you a, a probably a correct answer but it was one day you'd be able to see 10 feet and the next day there was just the, the water was the same clarity but there's just so much junk in the water you wouldn't feel like you had near the visibility yeah did you have to adjust your live scope for that this is sort of a side question i guess but like was that affecting your picture or not dude if, I think if it was the 32 transducer, it would have taken some adjusting, but that's new GT or uh, LVS 34 is like, it's so to set and forget. I hardly ever have to touch that thing. Um, you know, you, you could have maybe made some adjustments, but I, I specifically remember not touching it. That transducer is just so more, so much more user-friendly and forgiving when it comes to making those fine adjustments. You just crank that gain up and uh, it's still clear. Okay. I figured, I kind of thought that was the answer, but I wanted to check because it's always, I always like asking about live scope. It's like yeah. one of my favorite things. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Um, let's see. On that, uh, did you have, your crankbait fish, you really just had sort of one area. Did, were you able to replicate that pattern throughout the lake at all, or was it like, just one particular school that you had found and like did you ever have a chance to try to expand on that and like pick up a secondary school somewhere else that you just didn't you weren't able to capitalize on or you weren't able to like put together because it seems like man having two of those areas would have been like the deal you know what i mean well you know i could get bit through the day here and there by singles on the crankbait but um I think what happens on that lake is they really school up overnight and they feed on some type of bait fish either through the night or first thing in the morning. And then as the sun gets up, they disperse. 
so the problem for me anyways with that was like I didn't have enough low light hours in the day. I cranked through almost all my practice. I cranked all practice looking for that, and but I would still just catch one here and there rather than a whole school. And, and that school I had found in the second morning of practice um, early. And uh, I, the only reason I knew it was the school was live scope. Just talking about live scope, I I was going down this grass line and I catch one here, then catch another one 15 minutes later, and then I caught one. And I looked at live scope and there was 15 or 30 of them following it in wow. on live scope. <laughs> So I thought, well, maybe they're just passing through, but I'm going to start here just in case they live here. And yep. uh, sure enough, they live there. But uh, for that next day anyways. But um, yeah, I think, and, and there were a couple other guys that were able to get, get on those super good early schools like James Elam. Um, and James is a, my roommate. So we've talked about this at length on that, on that lake. And I think it's just a timing thing. I would love to have another group, uh, but I just didn't wasn't able to find one, and I, I think maybe those those shallow or mid depth shallow water schools are more in the summertime and early fall, just like a super early morning deal. Cool, cool. That's that's interesting to hear. I wonder. It, it makes sense that they would eat in the morning or eat overnight, like something like that would happen. Um, I've noticed on one of the lakes near me, like if you like when I fish like a Wednesday nighter there or a Wednesday afternoon tournament, like I'll be scoping around, scoping around, like you'll catch some fish. And then like the last hour before it gets dark, I mean, they are on the alewives, like no tomorrow. Hmm. And you will catch four times as many fish in the last hour as you did earlier in the day. And those fish, like they just start appearing and eating. And it's like, you know, photo periods matter for smallmouth for sure. <laughs> yes. Oh, Pretty interesting. Cool. Yeah. You hear about how smallmouth that always love those, like the such, such sight feeders and they like the sun and stuff. So it's cool to hear about examples like that. And when smallmouth decide to turn into vicious sharks like that, dude, there's, <laughs> there's nothing better. Like, you know, James was catching two fish on one crankbait multiple times a day, dude. Man, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. I, Wish he could have used a net. That would have probably been, made things his life a lot easier. <laughs> Two smallmouth yeah, no on one crankbait has got to be a rodeo with just your hands. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I, I'm sure there were a lot of dudes that, that got actually hooks in the hand from that tournament trying to catch those dudes cranking. Golly. Um, well, I tell you what, man. I feel like we've covered basically all of the recent uh, fishing news uh, about you that we can anyway. Um so I guess thanks for the time. And is there anything you need to plug or promote before you go? Uh, I know you've got a podcast, you've got social media, all that good stuff, right? Thanks, man. Well, no, it's, it's an honor to get on again. It's cool uh, that we've been able to chat twice in a pretty short amount of time. So, um, yeah, no, just thanks to you for having me on. Thanks to all the listeners. Um, you can always check me out on, on Instagram, Facebook, Josh Bird Transfishing. Uh, started a YouTube a few months ago. Um, it's more in, instructional and informative. You can uh, check that out. And yeah, my podcast is Angler's Happy Hour. Um, and we'll be uh, releasing a new episode probably tomorrow too. So there might be a fresh one if you get a chance to listen to that after you're done listening to this. I'll just uh, thanks to you for having me on, man. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for the time. And uh, congrats on the win because, 
man, that U.S. Open title is something that is extremely cool to have. Um, and, uh, man, I mean, having your name on the trophy with everyone else is something that's hard to top, I would say. Pretty cool, man. Yeah, I'm super thankful. <laughs>